Last week, Pastor Aaron taught in relation to being the caregiver and the care receiver and the God of it all, as he led us through some helpful expectations to have and also to not have, and then also some strategies. And next week, uh, Dale Johnson will continue this series teaching about hindrances to the effectiveness of biblical soul care. And that brings us to this week's topic on guilt and repentance. And the concern I have is just that in this day and age, especially at a, even at a church like this, perhaps, where we've grown up, many of us in the church culture, that we might use the word repent or I repented or we need to repent about this or that, that we might not have a full understanding of what the Bible teaches about repentance. And I hope that uh, that will be one helpful takeaway among others from this morning. But as we think about guilt, what it is and how it works, uh, and we realize the reality of guilt for the believer is, for the believer is one of the ways that Paul says in the second in Philippians two thirteen that God is working in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. As we talk about guilt, and then as we think about repentance, and the believer's call to be repenting and the role we play in repentance, realize that this is one of the ways in which we work out our own salvation in fear and trembling, which is the previous verse, Philippians 2, 12. And then just a reminder that we need to be praying with a spirit dependence for him to cause these truths to take root in our hearts, that we would implement them in our lives for real and in real and practical ways, and that he would be glorified through it all. And that would be our prayer this morning. So let's jump into guilt. As we think about guilt, I want to begin at the point of defining sin very briefly. The shorter, the shorter catechism describes sin as any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. So that's any lack of conformity, conformity to God's law and any breaking of God's law. And we might think of 1 John 3, 4 that says sin is lawlessness. The ESV Study Bible says that sin is anything, whether in thoughts or actions or attitudes, that does not express or conform to the holy character of God and His moral law. We often think of sins of omission or sins of commission. And we know that God's law, God's commands, everything that we need to know that pertains to this life and godliness have been graciously and lovingly revealed to us through God's written word, the Bible. And when we violate God's holy commands, we are guilty of sin. And we know this. Thinking apart from the, from the Bible now for a moment, there are many other standards all around us. What's often thought of as guilt is all around us because we are surrounded by people and cultural norms and standards. And there are expectations that we live up to these norms and standards. These norms and standards, these expectations are relative or subjective, because they are standards, the standard of performance is different depending on the values of the person that is standing in the place of judgment over you. And they're going to stand there to judge the violation of the relative standard that they hold so dear. Other standards are quite objective, such as the law of gravity, or the laws of thermodynamics, or statutory law, such maybe even a, like a speeding limit, like a speed limit. Statutory laws must be kept, otherwise you might end up in jail or having to pay a fine if you are guilty of breaking the law. Because of all these variations, though, we want to understand guilt biblically. 
But first you might have heard of someone named Sigmund Freud, and this is not a biblical example here. He was a neurologist and a founder of psychoanalysis. His perspective was that you want to live, you want to free up your desires. Don't worry about guilt. That's actually false guilt, he would say. Uh, really, you are just an animal and there are no morals. Yet others in the world will medicate themselves or constantly seek to escape silence, often having noise or music playing in the background, perhaps in order to escape their guilt. And their conscience is active, and they, maybe they are just trying to escape guilt, or maybe they just love music. But, um, but Christians, of course, can tend to do this as well. Psychology and the world around us can tend to view guilt as a foe, whereas the scriptures view guilt as a friend. The American Psychological Association's Dictionary of Psychology defines guilt as a self-conscious emotion characterized by a painful appraisal of having done or thought something that is wrong and often by a readiness to take action designed to undo or mitigate this wrong. And there are many views of psychology and thousands of them. Some of them might express the following theories about guilt. And maybe you've heard some of these, that guilt is your enemy, or as long as you allow guilt to plague your thoughts, you'll never be able to live with full authenticity as a person. Or that because of guilt, your self-esteem has been badly damaged, and that, is, and that it is imperative that you do everything you can to, bring, to begin to put guilt behind you and feel better about yourself. Guilt might be described as a self-mutilating exercise that wastes time and energy, and that instead, you ought to think of yourself as good rather than polluting your mind with thoughts of worthlessness and self-hatred. Biblically, however, guilt is not the enemy, but it, rather it is the source of our conviction. Guilt is a friend, and it is a grace from God. And then what we do with guilt is important. Guilt is like an early warning device, like a smoke detector. When a smoke detector goes off, you don't just go grab a hammer and then smash it. You go and investigate the source of the problem, and then you take action to remedy the problem. As Christians, since we want to think biblically about guilt, or we do want to do that, so let's take a closer look. We want to take the fact of guilt seriously. We want to take the fact of guilt seriously. And biblically speaking, guilt is defined as a legal liability or culpability to punishment. A legal liability or culpability to punishment. The Bible stresses the fact of guilt, the fact of culpability before God, not the feelings, not the negative feelings that would accompany it. There are three principles about the fact of guilt um, we can think about, that, that guilt is universal because sin is universal. Romans 3.19 says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. And then verse 23, which we know, Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sin and guilt for sin is universal and applies to all people in their natural state. Number two, guilt is serious because God is a holy judge. God made us and owns us, and we owe perfect worship and obedience to Him. He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness, Acts 17. And Romans 1.18 says that God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men 
who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And Romans 2, 5 and 6 say, but because of your hard, impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. So guilt is serious because God is a holy judge. And the third one, number three, is that guilt will remain even if it can be explained away in your mind or if its effects are somehow lessened. But then where guilt remains, punishment is inevitable. In my preparation for this message, I read an article in this, at the Psychology Today website that listed several ways to talk yourself out of unnecessary guilt. In that article, one of the ways is to tell yourself that the behavioral ideals you set for yourself or that your original family encouraged you in or forced upon you may be too high and are overly rigorous standards that you, are, that you now judge yourself by. The author elaborated and he said, it's possible that you guilt yourself for not accomplishing something that really isn't in you to achieve. Now, even if a person were to explain away uh, or neutralize the guilt in his own mind, his guilt will remain and punishment is inevitable. I don't recommend we get advice from Psychology Today website, by the way, but just if we, even if we can, even if we heard something like that or in our or an unbeliever hears that and that you can explain away the guilt in some way. We're still guilty. We still stand guilty before God. Hebrews 9.27 says, it's appointed for a man once to die and then comes judgment. Solomon in Ecclesiastes 12.14 says, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So God will judge our sin regardless of how we feel about it. And until that day, oftentimes our guilt is accompanied by bad or negative feelings. And we want to take those feelings of guilt or the feelings around guilt seriously. And we want to do that because there's always an underlying reason for those, for feeling guilty. And taking them seriously provides great hope for change. And we'll address why that is momentarily. It's important to note here that our bad, our bad or negative feelings are a result of guilt but those feelings are not the same as guilt. And I'll use this example here uh, in the opposite direction. For example, if it's, it's possible to actually be guilty but not feel guilty. It would be like speeding down a small road at 55 miles an hour and then slowing down to 30 as you zoom through a school zone with a 15 mile an hour speed limit. While you weren't driving as fast as you were, you might not feel guilty you might not really feel guilty, but the police officer would still give you a ticket for, driving, for actually driving 15 miles per hour over the speed limit in that school zone. So while bad feelings that often accompany guilt are not the same as guilt, we still want to take them seriously because there is always an underlying reason for feeling guilty. We also want to recognize the powerful effects of guilt. Psalm 32 and Psalm 38 are both passages that graphically reveal the devastating emotional and physical effects that guilt can have on a person. In Psalm 32, that's where we read about the effects of David's guilt before confessing his adultery against Bathsheba, with Bathsheba and his cover-up murder of her husband Uriah. 
And then in Psalm 38, verse 3, David describes his guilt this way. There is no soundness in my flesh. There is no health in my bones. And verse 5, my wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the day I go about mourning. Which speaks to the powerful effects that the fact of guilt had upon him physically and emotionally. You and I have felt this, haven't we? In our own bodies, when we have been guilty and we've tried to hide it and keep something a secret instead of confessing and turning back to God. Next, we'll talk about the mechanism that exposes guilt, the conscience. God has given us the faculty of conscience to help us identify the presence of guilt. And the word literally means to know together and has been defined as the soul reflecting on itself. Our inner man uses the information it possesses to evaluate our thinking and actions, which is much like a diagnostic program running perpetually on a computer. Our conscience is always in action and working. Andrew Nacelli, in his helpful book titled Conscience, defines conscience as your consciousness about what you believe is right and wrong. It's your awareness or sense about what you believe is right or wrong. And he points out three implications that flow from this definition. One is that the conscience produces different results for people based on different moral standards. You can imagine being born and growing up in maybe an Arabic culture where it's okay to be dishonest as long as if you're a man and you're providing for your family. You might not feel conviction and the same kind of guilt. But we do know that God writes his law on our hearts and that even through our conscience, God reveals himself that there is a God. But still in that circumstance, we might not, a person in that culture might not feel the same kind of guilt we do in our culture. A second one is that the conscience can change. Said another way, it can be trained. It can be trained to be good and clear or it can be trained to be weak and then seared. And thirdly, the conscience serves as a guide, a monitor, a witness, and a judge. As a guide, it looks, it's forward-looking as a guide as we are, before we make a decision. The other three, as a monitor, a witness, and a judge, the conscience is backward-looking or uh, as it assesses our decisions. The New Testament writers write about, talk about the importance of a clean or a clear conscience as well. In passages like Acts 24, 16, where Paul is in front of Felix at Caesarea before appealing his arrest to Caesar, he says in his defense that he always takes pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and men. Also, Paul in 2 Timothy 1, 3, as he's writing to Timothy, says that he serves God with a clear conscience. In my past immaturity, I used to drive fast, regularly exceeding the speed limit. Sorry, Mom. I don't know if I ever told you this. Uh, And I was always on the alert. I was looking down the road over hills for that lurking highway patrolman sitting perfectly hidden behind a hill or a wall to capture evildoers like myself in the act. And anytime I drove by one, I would look back and if he was, to see if he was pulling out. And you might know the feeling. My 
my heart would leap in my chest as soon as I saw his lights turned on. I was busted. So friends, that was a sinful pattern of life for me in that season, and I definitely did not have a clear or a clean conscience behind the wheel. By God's grace, he is sanctifying me in that specific area, and I know that regularly seeking to drive the speed limit with a clear conscience is wonderful because, he, because living obediently pleases God, and he is my judge. So to have a clear conscience for the Christian means striving to live obediently before God. And then where there is a mismatch between God's holy standard and our lives, when we fall short, that's right. Well, that's where the second part of this lesson comes into play regarding repentance. But before we go there, I just want to briefly mention that there are variations of conscience referred to in Scripture. Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8 describe the weak conscience, which can be biblically informed and trained, but it shouldn't be judged by someone whose conscience has already been specifically, perhaps further trained by God's word on the matter. That's the passage about eating meat that has been, uh, has been offered to idols. Nevertheless, whether we assess our, our own conscience as weak or strong on a given matter, it's not to be violated. Romans 14.23 says, For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So you don't want to violate your conscience. Rather, you want to educate it. On the negative end of the spectrum of conscience is that we could have a hardened conscience. And a hardened conscience is described in Titus 3.10, where Paul wrote to Titus to be aware of divisive people who may need to be put out of the church because they stir up strife and division by continuing to argue about doctrines contrary to what is being taught and after receiving a first and second warning from church leadership. So the conscience can be hardened, but it can also be weak. Next, the solution to guilt, repentance. And oh, how wonderful it is that there's a solution to guilt. The, the only true answer to guilt is forgiveness through repentance. And God must remove the guilt of our sin through his appointed means of repentance. This is true for salvation and after salvation. For salvation, we can think of Luke 24, 47, where Jesus, after his resurrection, before he ascended, and after opening the disciples' minds so they could understand the scriptures, he said to them that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. But then also, after salvation, we can think of Matthew 6, 12, when Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray, he includes the phrase, and forgive us our debts as we also forgive, have forgiven our debtors. And to forgive our debts, there's repentance that seeks forgiveness in that little phrase, forgive us our debts. So forgiveness by God through repentance is the only true answer to the fact of our guilt. And so let's take a look at repentance then. First, the definition. The word repent basically means to turn or to change. It's an inward turn that leads to an outward change. And that also leads to the fruit of repentance. It's a change of mind, we said last time, that is so complete that it results in a change of direction. In salvation, man cannot. He is not able to make this turn by himself. Uh, it is God who, gra who graces those he will save with repentance and saving faith. Uh, 
It is a gift from God in salvation. Repentance is best illustrated in the picture of someone who is walking in one direction towards sin and then does a 180 and then heads in the opposite direction by faith in Christ. Next, repentance is necessary, is a necessary component of genuine conversion. This kind of continues from that, what we just spoke about. In Luke 3, 3, John the Baptist went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So we can we know that unsaved people must turn from sin, and, and that's, that's true, that's the testimony of each of our lives if we love the Lord. Unsaved people live in a state of self-rule, and we did too, with ourselves set up as our own Lord and Master instead of Christ. Romans 10.9 says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And 2 Corinthians 5.15 says that Jesus died so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Next, repentance also remains continually necessary after conversion. Repentance also remains continually necessary even after conversion. We can think of Luke 17 where if you're, it says, if your brother sins, repents seven times in a day, you must forgive him. So there's this concept there even, though that's more about forgiveness but the concept of repenting seven times continually uh, if he's a brother and he's continually repenting. Those who are saved must confess and turn from the sin that continues to indwell them. We've hit on indwelling sin from Romans 7 multiple times in this series already. And that continual turning for believers is not done in order to be reconciled with God for salvation because positionally the believer's sins have already been forgiven in Christ. A believer's sin, however, breaks communion with God and must be repented of. In John 13, when Jesus models a love-motivated, humble service toward others by washing the disciples' feet in the upper room, Peter pushes back and says, no, Jesus says yes. And then Peter then says, well, not only my feet, but also wash my head and my hands. And Jesus says in verse 10, the one who has bathed does not need to be does not need to wash except for his feet because he is completely clean. Jesus is teaching that for the believer, he is already saved and that the cleansing of sin for salvation does not need to be repeated. But experientially, as we are being sanctified, we need to be repenting and turning away from sin and turning to God regularly. Sin is anti-relational. It's anti-Christ in nature. This turning is often referred to as the putting off of what's wrong and the putting on of what's right. <clears throat> sin is not like water under a bridge that we can just ignore and say, oh, well, I guess I just did that, but at least it's in the past. No, no. Sin is more like a wall of water that is being built up with one sin brick at a time, and it keeps adding up until it needs to be dealt with. Vertically with God, it needs to be dealt with vertically with God always, and then also horizontally if, when we sin against others. Next, false repentance. 
All true repentance has reference to a turning from the state or occurrence of sin and turning by faith to God for forgiveness and renewal. But false repentance, but Scripture often alludes to a false repentance that does not, act, that there is a false repentance that does not actually bring forgiveness. Grab your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 3, verse 7. And you're familiar with this passage probably. It's where John the Baptist was baptizing the people who came to him, confessing their sins in verses 5 and 6. Matthew 3, 7. And then the Pharisees and Sadducees also showed up. But John called them out saying, You brood of vipers! And then he exposed their lack of a changed life by commanding them, Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Meaning that repentance is not merely a mental assent or an agreement, but it must also be accompanied by a changed life and good deeds. Since, false, since a false repentance is possible, we must understand some elements and effects of repentance in order that we would be able to practice it ourselves and also to help others do so as well. So what are some elements of true repentance? And there's three that we'll go through, comprehending, confessing, and choosing. First, comprehending. We must be comprehending the truth relevant to our sin and our Savior because, um, I'm sorry, before we, we must comprehend the truth relevant to our sin and our Savior before we can repent. The Greek word most often translated for repentance, translated as repentance, is metanoia, which denotes a change of mind. We have to know the command and then comprehend the mismatch between the command and our conduct in order to change our thinking. Ephesians 4.23 says, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. The command there, be renewed, is present tense and it's also in the passive voice, which means that the renewing of your mind is something that happens to you. Now you can't just sit back as if the change of mind were gonna happen to you without doing anything. No, God's plan is that we have to actively read and know God's word. We must comprehend the command. We must know, read, be corrected, and even be reminded of what God says on the matter. And it's the Holy Spirit that does this illuminating of Scripture that makes it powerful and effective in our lives. And that makes God's word living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. So as we actively read and meditate and memorize and recite God's word, the Holy Spirit uses God's word to change our minds. And he does it in such a way that we say the same thing that God says about our sin when we confess our sins to him. Turn with me to Romans 10, verse 9. And this is on the element of confessing. Romans 10.9 says this, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. The Greek verb translated confess in Romans 10.9 and 10 means to say the same thing that God says about our sin. And confession has a twofold nature to it. 
there's a, an acknowledgement and agreement. There's acknowledgement to God about the fact of our sin, and there's agreement with God about the nature of our sin. Now, this is the opposite of the deception that children do when they might cross their fingers behind their back uh, while they say, are saying sorry for their, <laughs> they're sorry for hitting their brother or sister. Now, we would never do this ourselves, right? Um, no, because we know that's false repentance, which is part of a, that's a false confession, which is part of a false con- repentance. It is false because the child is not actually agreeing with God about the nature of his sin. And that leads us then to the next element of true repentance, which is choosing. The true repentance always includes a willful resolve to not repeat the sin and an active resolve to pursue righteousness in its place. An active, I'm sorry, a willful resolve to not repeat the sin and an active resolve to pursue righteousness in its place. This doesn't mean you'll worship God perfectly going forward, but it does mean you are willfully resolved to put off that specific sin that you did in that specific situation. And as you think about the gospel of Jesus Christ and your love for him, that gospel sanctifies you because the Holy Spirit instills in you an active resolve to then pursue righteousness in the place of sin. We can think of Proverbs 28, 13 that says, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes will obtain mercy. Notice the choosing. He who confesses and then forsakes, the choosing of to forsake that action will obtain mercy. So there needs to be a comprehending, a confessing, and a choosing for true repentance. And then we must also understand some effects of true repentance. And all of these are not necessarily needed to be in place for true repentance. And I'll talk through them, each one here. So although repentance itself is an inward turning, it takes place, and that takes place in the heart, it inevitably leads to change in other areas of a person's life. If it's not accompanied or followed by such effects when they're appropriate, it's not a real repentance, but rather a false one that fails to bring forgiveness. Regret. The first one is regret. There ought to be a godly sorrow when our conscience pricks the fact of guilt in our heart. For example, 2 Corinthians 7 speaks about worldly sorrow that leads to death as opposed to godly sorrow that leads to salvation and a desire to make, to make right the wrong no matter the cost. One of the Greek words and one of the Hebrew words for repentance have emotion involved. Sorrow is an emotional response and true repentance may not always be accompanied by other emotions, especially emotions that are visible to others. But in many cases, a feeling of sorrow corroborates other evidences and points to a real change of thinking. Think of David's confession in Psalm 51. He says, against you, speaking to God, against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Or Job 42, Job says, therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. You can hear the emotions in those passages, but emotions alone, emotional responses alone, however, do not prove that repentance is genuine. 
Next, restitution. Simply stated, restitution would mean that if, you, if something has been stolen, then return or replace it. The word means to set things right. The repentant sinner must fulfill any obligations to the offended party. You can think of the story of Zacchaeus in Luke 19 and how he committed to restoring the improper taxes that he collected. Restitution includes both an outward confession when it's appropriate and, an, and a willingness to accept the consequences of our own sin. David didn't play the victim in his Psalm 51 confession, whereby he, ex in, in his confession, you can see that he accepts as justified and blameless any words or judgments against him from God. Next, reconciliation. Reconciliation can be summarized by saying that two parties have been reconciled and they are brought together. And we see reconciliation here as one of the effects of true repentance. At salvation, when God gives a person faith to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, they immediately respond with true repentance and immediately the person is reconciled to God. In sanctification, repentance is continually necessary after conversion to restore the broken relationship. And when our sins and when our sin has resulted in a broken relationship with another person, true repentance will cause us to do whatever we can to transform the conflict into a peaceful and edifying friendship. Romans 12:18 says that if possible, so far as depend as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. Next, restoration. This is where the two parties start building together and growing in relationship. Most of the time, reconciliation leads to restoration, but not always. Most often, the immediate counsel for two people who are now reconciled is to build or start to restore their relationship. And obviously, we can think of some examples, for example, in, in cases of immorality or abuse of another person that uh, restoration would not be appropriate. Next, I want to emphasize that repentance is used by God to strengthen our faith. And this is wonderful to, to realize and to encourage us to be repenting and turning back to God. God forgives when we repent, not when we give counterfeit confessions. Remember, we must keep our eyes upon Jesus, regularly finding our hearts satisfied with the fountain of living waters, seeking to know Him and experience his power in obedient, holy living according to God's revealed word as we, and all of that while we're eagerly awaiting his return. And God knows our heart when our repentance is vertical to him and a true repentance to God always results in a reconciled, restored relationship with him. We remember the hymn that says, our sins, they are many, his mercy is more. And no matter how many steps we take away from God in sin that you have taken since you last repented, it's always one, just one step back to God to get right with Him relationally. And that one step back is through repentance. And we serve a good God, and He is eager to forgive. Now in the horizontal dimension, which is where many of our conflicts arise as well, um, being fully reconciled to someone can be more difficult because we are not God and we don't know what's in the heart of the person who's coming to us to seek forgiveness. But should it be more difficult? 
We'll talk more about forgiveness in a few weeks. I'll be teaching on that in about three weeks. And the offended Christian's part in reconciliation for the offended person is forgiveness, if you're a believer. But we're all sinners, and so it's easy for us to harbor a grudge or to not hope and believe all things, isn't it? And when someone is confessing, anytime someone is confessing their sin to us, it's easy to do those things. We can often desire to avenge ourselves by maybe punishing the person or not granting forgiveness freely. But God has called us to peace. Grab your Bibles and turn to 2 Corinthians 7, verse 11. But God has called us to peace. And that is all the more reason why we, when we are guilty of sinning against someone, we really want to do as much as we can in repentance to be reconciled to the person against whom we have sinned. We want to be the 2 Corinthians 7.11 kind of a confessing Christian. One who is earnest to be reconciled. One who is eager to clear ourselves. The NASB says, calls it vindication. We want to be one who is indignant at the shame our sin has brought on our Savior and His people. We want to be one who fears the God who chastens and judges sin. We want to be the one who longs for a restored relationship with the one who was sinned against. We want to be the one who is so zealous in Christian love for their brother or sister that they hate that they have harmed him or her. And we want to be the one who wants justice to be served for the wrong that they have done, that we have done, so that we no longer care to protect ourselves, no matter what it costs. And we want, to, we want to make the most biblical confession we can so that we genuinely communicate our contrition for the actual hurt that we cause the other person. And so lastly, I'm going to share seven elements to help you make a biblical confession. And these are from Ken Sandy's material, which is footnoted at the bottom on the other side of your sheet. Seven elements to help you make a biblical confession. Up front, just please allow me to share some warnings. This is not a magic formula for manipulation. These are not weasel words to help you weasel out of your difficult situation that is brought on by your sin. To the recipient of a confession, this is not a litmus test of the heart of the confessor, such that their confession, if their confession misses the mark on some of these elements, uh, or that you are off the hook to forgive them because now you know their heart and you can tell that they don't really mean it. So these are not a tool that you can use to withhold forgiveness if you're a believer. These are for you. These are for you to help you with your confession. We can say these are grease. These are to grease the skids of reconciliation because you and I need help in making a biblical confession. And so let's jump in. Address everyone involved. We want to deliver your confession to everyone involved, to the person directly, of course, but also to others who are in earshot or who were in the room with you. Next, avoid the words if, but, and maybe in your confession. It's so easy to shift the blame to the other person without even realizing that you just did it. When you say something like, I'm sorry if you took offense at my tone, can you see how the other person 
is now in the wrong for taking offense at your tone as you try to smooth over the conflict? By adding if, you imply that you're not really sure if you committed an actual offense or not. The word but. I shouldn't have lost my temper, but you, can you, can you hear the blame shift coming on that one? But really cancels out everything that you said that precedes it. And then maybe, maybe I should have tried harder. Uh, Ken Sandy says to be honest and put some teeth in your confession by saying, I was wrong to not, to not wait to hear your side of the story, for example. In essence, using the words if, but, and maybe in your confession communicates that you have not yet taken responsibility for your actions or words and that you are not likely to change your behavior in the future. Are you resonating with this? Or am I the only, am I the only one who is guilty of doing these things? It just slips in so easily. Just try to catch it in your, in your own confession next time. Maybe don't point it out in somebody else's, but just look for it in yours. Um, admit specifically. If you, don't want to show, if, you, if you want to show that your confession is sincere, you should be as precise as possible. By specifically admitting that you did wrong and even the biblical commands that were violated, you will communicate that you are honestly facing up to the problem, which makes it easier for the other person to forgive you. Uh, it also helps you identify what behavior needs to be changed. When confessing, we need to get out of fuzzy land or get out of Vegsville, as one of my professors likes to say. A vague or fuzzy confession is so broad that you'll never know if you're making project, progress in that specific area that is needed. You see, we sin specifically in the specific circumstances that God brings our way. And because we sin specifically, we must learn to confess specifically so that then you can obey specifically by God's grace. So I lost my suitcase one time at the airport. And I mean, have you seen these rooms where there's the attendant and the little desk and then the mountains of suitcases all around? Um, what if you were picking a friend up at the airport and you bumped into me and I said, hey, I lost my suitcase. Can you go over there and get it? I mean, you would have no clue which one to get. I mean, the same is true if I tell my wife, man, hey, I've been a bad husband. Uh, I need to be a better husband, which is true. <laughs> but that's when she gives me the look. It's like, oh, and so you're just now seeing this? We've been married 16 years and you're just now coming to me? But she would not know specifically what I was sorry about or what I was thinking about trying to change because quite frankly, I wouldn't know either if that's the way I came to her. So we want to admit specifically. Next, we want to acknowledge the hurt. Another way to genuinely communicate our contrition is by seeking to acknowledge the hurt that we caused the other person. We also want to accept the consequences. Actions have consequences. To accept the consequences is a matter of your attitude and it may require you to take action. If you're unwilling to accept the consequences of your wrong, you communicate that your confession is insincere. Or, yeah, it, when you, if you're unwilling, but if you are willing, you communicate that it is sincere. And that may be, you need to go and fulfill a promise that you reneged on, or even that active, taking an active resolve to pursue righteousness. I'm sorry. Um, or even going and confessing to your child or other people that were in the room. You may need to go and do that as well as you accept the consequences of, of your behavior. 
Next is altering your behavior. And this is simply the putting off and the put on combination of that we've already been talking about. That willful resolve to not repeat the sin and then the active resolve to pursue righteousness in its place. We also want to ask for forgiveness and allow time. We need to humble ourselves and ask the person to forgive you. Will you forgive me are not magic words, but they can communicate your humble and contrite heart and that you're, you have a strong desire to be reconciled. It's important when you ask that you don't try to force it. The Holy Spirit is also working in that other person's life. And you can pray, you can just confess and not try to force it when the person doesn't respond on your timeline. So let me just in our few seconds here, consider this non-confession and I'll suggest a different one. What if I said this? I can tell you that you're mad at me for what I said to you at supper. Well, I'm sorry, but I had a hard day at work. I'm sorry if you took offense at my response when you asked if I could take the kids to practice tonight. I was planning to work on that project you've been nagging me about for three months. <laughs> I might not feel much pressure to get it done if you'd be a little more patient with me. And why do we have to have the kids in all these activities anyway? Anyway, I'm sorry. There, are you happy now? That's a bit extreme, but maybe there's, you can resonate with some of that. But instead, what if I said, when I came home from work today, I was thinking only of myself. I was wanting to make progress on that project I've let drag out and forgot about needing to take the kids to practice. I became angry that I couldn't have my way and that I'm forgetful. I struggle with laziness and I know it's my fault that I've let the project slip for so long. When I answered back to you with angry words, I sinned against, and harsh words, I sinned against God and against you. It must have been really hurtful for you to hear those things coming from your husband, from me, your husband who loves you. Next time, for next time, I'm resolved to prepare my heart before I come home, asking for God's grace to consider the needs of others in my family over my own. And then, even if my plans don't work out, I want to act and speak kind, loving words that build you and the kids up. Will you forgive me? Yes, honey, I will always forgive you. <laughs> honey, where are the kids? I, I want to go seek their forgiveness as well. So, oh, what joy and hope and peace we have in the person and work of Jesus Christ through repentance, right? His plan is to sanctify his people uh, he calls us, in his plan to sanctify his people, he calls us to acknowledge the fact of our guilt, to respond biblically to, to conviction when our conscience lights us up, and then to turn from our sin to God in biblical repentance, seeking reconciliation. Next week, Dale will teach us about the hindrances of effectiveness to biblical soul care. And I pray that the Lord would use this in our lives.